everyone. I'm Jacopo Dettoni, and this is the FDI podcast. Today, I'm joined once again remotely by Robert Volterra. Frankly, Mr. Volterra needs little introduction. He's a partner with the eponymous law firm Volterra Fietta, a visiting professor of international law at the University College London, UCL, and a visiting senior lecturer at King's College, also here in London. More broadly, we can say that Mr. Volterra is really a thought leader in the fields of international law, foreign investment and arbitration, which is why it is a great pleasure for us to have him here at the FDI podcast to discuss COVID-19 and the arbitration risks that the pandemic brings along. So welcome to the show, Mr. Volterra. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. In the past few months, we have witnessed and personal experience, obviously, uh, government interventions that have created uh, unprecedented disruption for households, societies, and economies. Can they also give rise to arbitration claims and legal disputes? Yes, uh, they can. These activities of governments have exposed countries to uh, disputes at the state-to-state level and disputes from foreign investors against governments and the actions they've taken supposedly in response to the pandemic, although sometimes it's highly questionable. Why do you say it's hardly questionable? So is there any particular way these countries, as you as you say, have exposed themselves? The World Health Organization very early on in January 2020 was advising governments not to impose travel bans Um, Yet many countries did, and this will have had a negative effect on any number of industries, including airline industries. That's just one example. Um, There's also been um, examples around the world of governments um, engaging in various kinds of regulations of the economy that is um, easily defensible, logical, rational, consistent with accepted pandemic uh, prevention and suppression and that sort of thing. And there's also been examples, uh, and we've all seen them in the press, of uh, actions taken by governments that that don't seem to have any scientific or medical basis. But we have also learned in the the past few months that science is also a sort of a relative concept. Also, if you look at the same uh, virologists, different people would tell you different things about uh, this pandemic. And I guess that, so from from the perspective of a policymaker, I would argue um, this is what uh, my science in that particular moment was suggesting me to do. Oh, absolutely. And don't get me wrong. I act in equal measure for for governments uh, and investors in in the space of investor state arbitration. And we've been advising both investors and governments in this context over the last half year. Absolutely. Uh, the science can be confusing. The medical advice can be you know, somewhat shifting. Um, and this appears to be perfectly natural. I'm, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but this seems to be natural as, as, a, as the world of science and medicine get to know what, a, what is happening with a particular virus and how it operates. And right. governments certainly are perfectly entitled to regulate, respond, uh, change how they respond as, as the science develops and, and so on. Um, Absolutely. But there's also uh, things that um, uh, could not be justified. So it's one thing, it would be one thing for a government to say, well, you know, in March of 2020, this is what the scientific advice was. And therefore, we, we took these steps because that was connected with the scientific advice. 
one can also imagine a situation where, um, despite the government saying, well, you know, this was our scientific advice and so we needed to do something, but what they did was actually unconnected with the scientific advice. For example, if the scientific advice says something like, um, you know, people should not go into mines um, during the pandemic because they will spread uh, disease, and the government passed regulations saying um, all foreign mines must close, but domestically owned mines can stay open. Right. Well, one, one might say, well, <laughs> okay, there, there is some vague connection with science in what you did, but you clearly discriminated against the foreigner, for example. So on what ground investors might be willing to sue uh, host uh, states when it comes to specifically to investor state uh, disputes? Uh, are we always talking on the ground of uh, provisions included in, uh, in bilateral investment treaties? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, generally speaking, because it is usually only uh, investment treaties or investment chapters of broader trade and economic treaties that provide um, individuals and companies, as opposed to their home state, uh, the ability to commence um, binding arbitration uh, against a, uh, a government where they've made an investment. Generally, uh, one would need to look at the specific terms of any given treaty. And there are some treaties that specifically allow um, for a government to take emergency measures, uh, even if they're harmful to foreign investors, uh, as long as they're not discriminatory. It's not like every single act of a government that hurts the economy is going to make the, the country liable to, to be sued. The opposite side of the coin is exactly the same. Not just just because there has been a pandemic, not every government activity has therefore been uh, condoned. Why wouldn't governments just claim uh, something like force majeure to justify their interventions? The concept of force majeure at international law is not necessarily the same as it in as it is in domestic law because it, it, it's meant to regulate private relationships uh, and private legal obligations mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's not self-evident that it is always going to apply when there is state activity involved at the international plane right? so when a state is acting as a state on the international plane and that's where you get a, a treaty obligation for example that's at the international level. It's different than when a state is, say, a signatory to a concession contract or a commercial obligation in which um, uh, force majeure provisions uh, may apply. A state has responsibility for complying with international law, and uh, there are certain bases on which a state is excused from uh, certain responsibility that would otherwise apply in certain uh, circumstances. There are certain sort of um, emergency powers and emergency measures uh, that are uh, occasionally recognized uh, to states um, uh, as being as being uh, um, reasons why they might uh, be able to do something on a temporary basis, a sort of an emergency measures response. Indeed, it's interesting that the uh, the international health regulations that were promulgated in 2005 um, under the uh, World Health Organization 
recognizes that states uh, have the right to, to regulate autonomously in pursuit of their own health policies, that it's the states that have the sovereign right to legislate or implement legislation uh, in relation to health policies. And there's some limitations on that, but that, that's, a, that's sort of another question. You mentioned also at the beginning that the World Health Organization uh, uh, at the very beginning uh, advised countries not to close their border or not to, to instate limitations to, to traveling and to trade, but many countries did anyways. Uh, but at the same time, as far as I understand, uh, these are non-binding uh, suggestions. Absolutely correct. The problem uh, arising in relation to the World Health Organization and, and some criticisms, the World Health Organization and the Director General can only really issue recommendations, indicate best practices, facilitate states cooperating, and, and so on. They are uh, non-binding. One reads in the, um, in the press about declarations from various politicians around the world that uh, you know, such and such country should be blamed for this and such and such country should be blamed for that. But ultimately, the problem with the international health regulations and the World Health Organization per se is operating rules of the organization don't create a binding compulsory mechanism. The World Health Organization is intended to be a center of expertise, excellence, facilitate cooperation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not meant to be a police force. From this perspective, in a way, uh, its recommendation cannot be used by investors to, to, for, for potential arbitration claims against the host states. The answer is a little bit more equivocal. It's not quite so clear-cut um, because the recommendations of the World Health Organization um, are in, should show um, best practice, best scientific knowledge, best medical information, and, and so on. And so the, the recommendations of the World Health Organization would be indicative of, of the practice on the part of a state uh, in terms of how it would be responding to uh, the COVID virus. There will be an extraordinary amount of, of latitude given to states to regulate in such an emergency. States may be called upon to justify rationally um, the actions they have taken. And I gave an example, as you, as you recall sure. earlier, that, that you know, um, discriminatory treatment uh, that favors you know, home uh, investors, home businesses, as opposed to foreign investors and foreign businesses, that there's, there doesn't seem to be anything in preventing a virus that, that allows foreigners <laughs> and their property be, to, be, to be subject to regulation differently from domestic commercial sure. operators and so on. And, and I, I would think that some of those discriminatory uh, actions uh, will, will be what are the focus of complaints. Well, one contentious point here would also be the fact that this pandemic came at a time where international relations were already strained for, for many different reasons. And obviously there was already an ongoing push globalization, multilateralism, etc. Have you ever had the perception that uh, this pandemic has also been used as a pretext for uh, some governments around the world to, to, to accelerate, if not keep pursuing uh, uh, a political agenda 
disguised as a, as a pandemic rescue package, or we obviously not in its entirety, but uh, with some provisions here and there that, as you say, they might not have necessarily uh, be related to some some specific scientific advice or a specific uh, uh, fix for for the, the the pandemic itself, but could have originated in a different context for different purposes. There have clearly uh, been instances where uh, responses to things that have happened at the global level um, because of the virus and the pandemic appear to be motivated by um, macro political issues that, that existed prior to the pandemic. So that absolutely seems to be the case. I would have thought from everything I'm reading from these uh, uh, pandemic experts around the world, there, there seems to be a, a, a near unanimous view that this pandemic is an example of why there needs to be greater international cooperation, at least in the field of health and, and these kind of uh, pandemic uh, issues, rather than less cooperation. And it's interesting to look at the at the history of global cooperation about about these major health issues. It really started in the middle of the 19th century. There were a, a series of treaties, international treaties, that were called the International Sanitary Convention. It started with a, a conference in Paris in 1851, and by the end of the 19th century, had led to a number of treaties providing for global cooperation in relation to cholera and plague and, uh, uh, and typhus and smallpox then got added in the beginning of the 20th century and so on. The science and medicine uh, from the mid-19th century onwards was leading to greater and greater cooperation. And the World Health Organization grew out of the UN process on the basis of these global initiatives to cooperate in terms of these macro health issues. And the experience of this pandemic seems to be that uh, no country is an island, even islands are not islands, Um, metaphorically. There do seem to be instances of of states uh, using the pandemic as an excuse to further unrelated diplomatic and and global political agenda. That's got to be a great concern for all the citizens of the world. Right. And I guess that that is also an element of uh, that narrative that you mentioned at the very beginning of countries exposing themselves to to some uh, some arbitration claims. Exactly. I've noticed in the last uh, couple of weeks that an increasing number of countries around the world from all different kinds of um, political economic contexts uh, have been declaring that they are going to increase scrutiny of foreign investment in their country. Yes, that's a big push. And, and, and they're saying it's because of the pandemic. I have yet to, had, had to see an explanation, apart from the words pandemic, as to why greater scrutiny of foreign investment is, it, it has anything to do with a virus called COVID-19 and, and, and how greater scrutiny of foreign investment would prevent pandemics in the future or anything like that. It just seems to be an example of some uh, possibly questionable review practices that may, I, I don't know, it depends how these things are implemented, but, but may possibly violate obligations that exist in bilateral investment treaties as, as we've discussed earlier. 
Voltaire Fieta, uh, your law firm uh, uh, specializes on uh, international arbitration. Would you expect this to become like, you know, a major headache for uh, host states? Or are we still, um, it could happen on paper, but uh, we will probably see just a few cases. What's your feeling? My feeling is that um, it, it really could go either way. And I think, I think we'll see a number of cases arising. We won't see uh, a number of reasonable, practical resolutions of, of disputes. We act almost in equal measure, 50-50, for governments and investors in these kinds of disputes. And mm -hmm. we, we, we settle far more disputes than actually go to arbitration. And the reason for that is that most investors want to conduct business. They, they don't want to make money from litigation. And most governments, you know, they want to have businesses and they want to have foreign investment and they want to have employment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are some exceptions to this, and there are some states that are, you know, conducting programized uh, expropriation, like Venezuela right now. You know, very sad for the people of Venezuela. The government's driving it into the ground. But but usually, expropriations and violations of obligations under investment treaties are are, are accidental. They're they're not uh, targeted at a whole industry. And there is usually scope for a reasonable settled outcome with a bit of compromise uh, on both sides. So we, we settle more of these disputes, both for investors and for states, than, than we do actually arbitrate them. But, but sometimes for political reasons, uh, a government cannot or will not um, settle. Uh, or uh, a claim is actually very unreasonable and, and an investor might be trying to blame the government for its bad business decision. Um, so I could see arising out of this uh, pandemic uh, a number of legitimate claims brought by foreign investors against governments that have used the pandemic as an excuse to expropriate foreigners or, or, or give a, a slight boost to domestic uh, economic actors or, or, or things like that. Um, and I could also see a number of claims being brought where governments will quite easily be able to point to legitimate um, public health measures implemented as a matter of necessity, which even if, even if they weren't perfect, were not violating international law obligations. So I could see it go both ways. I mean, now we are analyzing the, the situation with sort of with a, with a, um, with a benefit of hindsight in a way, and we are coming out of a lockdown. But if we if we go back to to where we were in February in Europe, for example, the level of confusion at, uh, at both uh, a civil society level but also at the policy maker, uh, making level was uh, widespread, meaning that nobody would have ever expected. Uh, any sort of lockdown measure was introduced that they would the government would actually do that uh, and that it's independently from uh, from the fact that you were in initially that was the first country got hit in europe or in spain but also in the uk that has always lagged a couple of weeks behind uh, spain and italy for example still um the civil society didn't believe that uh we would get to a point where uh, we would have to we would have to deal with a lockdown, and also the government uh, uh, felt uh, confused in that very early phases of the pandemic, and they didn't have uh, 
compliance with uh, uh, bilateral investment treaty at the very at the very top of their priorities in that particular moment. Is it realistic now to argue that there is a case for investors to sue host states um, in, in these particular circumstances? My answer would be uh, that it would depend on the particular fact situation of each circumstance. And I'm not trying to avoid the question, but, but I think that's a genuine answer. Um, for, for the average foreign investor um, whose investment has gotten up, caught up in some general public health regulations that were, even, even if mistaken, were, were genuinely based on existing science and advice and didn't target a particular industry or didn't target a, a, a foreign investors or particular foreign investors from a certain country or something like that, then it would be hard to argue that, that that was more than just some bad luck and that the state was allowed legitimately to regulate in the face of a public emergency of, of potentially catastrophic um, enormity. If there's been some, some uh, surreptitious targeting, if there has been discriminatory treatment, uh, if there's been action that was sustained for a long period of time that wasn't based on science, et cetera, et cetera, then arguably um, there, there will be legitimate claims. I would have thought that the most sensible thing for investors and governments at this stage, you know, where, where there's been four or five months of, of these sort of measures in place, is, is to see what happens in the winding down and as things become slowly uh, less locked uh, and, and so on. Obviously, the global economy is uh, significantly uh, hurt. Uh, growth rates have been reduced or eliminated. In fact, there's been shrinking economies in a number of countries, including the UK. I would have thought the most sensible thing would be to um, try to uh, negotiate uh, any disputes and resolve them through negotiation. And I would say that both to governments and, and to investors. Try, just try and unwind the, the problems that may have arisen unintentionally as governments you know, rushed to do uh, certain things. Um, if the actions were legitimate and uh, well-intentioned and, and so on. Okay, uh, Mr. Rotero, I would say a very last question. I understand and I, I read a few articles published by you and your colleagues at Rotero uh, Fieta going back to the issue of uh, the need for, for, for a stronger global governance uh, on, on health issues and a more coordinated regional, if not global response to, to things like a global pandemic like uh, COVID-19. You are proposing... Uh, to new mechanisms, including uh, a UN convention on uh, pandemic uh, suppression. So do you want to, to, to elaborate a bit further and give me a feeling of, uh, of uh, what do you mean with, with that and how that would improve uh, the, the, the global governance of uh, a pandemic like COVID-19? I should start by saying the idea of having a specific treaty dealing with a pandemic like this would not in and of itself be a magic wand that would solve all the problems of the world or even the problem of the next pandemic or this one. But the idea really is to address the shortcomings of the World Health Organization and the international health regulations that are in existence. And this is in no way to criticize the WHO or the health regulations. 
but merely recognizing that neither the WHO nor the international health regulations were intended to provide a binding set of uh, rules that guide the cooperation and require the coordination of countries to confront a pandemic. The current regulations are not enforceable. Many of the provisions are not mandatory. They're so broadly phrased that they allow states to judge themselves. And of course, they don't find themselves guilty. There's no way to ensure compliance. And the WHO is not an institution that can or should issue sanctions for violation of rules. Um, so everything is voluntary. Now, that's right. on the one hand, when you have international cooperation that is voluntary, then presumably it's enthusiastic and in good faith and so on. Um, but at the same time, uh, you get the problems that we've seen in this pandemic when there is not uh, effective coordination of, of a minimum level. So uh, it seems to me, as a non-scientist, non-doctor, non that um, effective international mechanisms are needed to ensure global cooperation at a minimal level. Things like early detection and reporting, sharing of information and technology, supporting developing countries' health capabilities, rapid creation and dissemination of vaccines, uh, protection of intellectual property for vaccines, and, and payment for uh, the development of vaccines and these kinds of things. The problem with trying to put this all onto the WHO is that that's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a it's meant to be a, a, a doctor, a world doctor, not a world police, uh, first of all. And second of all, there are a number of important countries, uh, powerful, large, wealthy countries that take issue over how the WHO has operated. So to try and, and get some new cooperation revolving around an institution that, that is not sort of universally endorsed is, is in itself going to be problematic. So why... Why try to, to beat your head against the door to do something that might have a, a better chance, just like those original global pandemic treaties of the late 19th century and early 20th century just have uh, a one-off focused treaty that uh, requires basic levels of cooperation and information sharing and transparency and, and allows states to call other states out and say, hey, you need to do this has clear guidelines and obligations and abilities to to compel and and to seek enforcement. So that's what I would want to see in a in a, a world uh, global pandemic uh, treaty. Mm -hmm. Of course, any treaty is only as good as the text of the agreement that's reached. So there there would be no point in having a global pandemic treaty that just copied the international health regulations and didn't add anything. This has been a, obviously a big uh, wake-up call for the whole global community. Um, it would be uh, definitely be interesting to see uh, whether the, the, we will find ourselves in a more cooperative uh, world, also through through schemes and mechanisms, as the, the, the possible uh, new convention on pandemic suppression that you have elaborated on just now. Or, or, or else we will find a more divided world where everybody kind of tries to look after their own countries and, and cooperation becomes as a second priority 
I guess uh, this is the bigger uh, elephant in the room. It's a big question mark at the moment, and it's going to be interesting to see where we will be in five years from now. If we think back to the the great plagues uh, of Europe in, in the medieval times, I think particularly the one in the 14th century that wiped out half or two-thirds of the European population, you know, the, the idea that you can isolate yourself uh, and not be affected, you know, it, it hasn't worked in the past, hasn't worked this time, unlikely to work in the future. Robert Volterra, thank you very much for this very fascinating and insightful discussion. Thank you very much for the invitation to participate in the program, and uh, I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Do you want to give our listeners a few details on uh, where they can find you, where they can find your law firm? As you pointed out at the beginning, I am a partner at the firm of Volterra Fieta, and that's a law firm uh, based in London, England, United Kingdom. My email address is robert.volterra, V-O-L-T-E-R-R-A, at Volterra, V-O-L-T-E-R-R-A, Fieta, F-I-E-T-T-A dot com. And um, that's how I can be reached. And, and we've got some client alerts and we've held some seminars on these sorts of issues and people can find them on our website. Okay, that's fantastic. Thanks again, Mr. Volterra. Thanks everybody for tuning in. You can find all our podcasts on a typical podcast platform, Acast, iTunes. Uh, and also on our website, fbiintelligence.com slash podcast. Until the next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.